Thank you, Sam. Good morning. Uh, Sam and Michelle, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Jonathan Cedar. I'm the co-founder and CEO of BioLite. We are a personal scale energy company serving off-grid communities around the world. Um, and uh, what I wanted to talk about a little bit this morning was uh, a little bit less about the recreation side of our business, although I'm, I'm really happy to answer any kinds of questions about that during the Q&A, um, and more talk about how we've thought about structuring our company to make uh, social impact uh, really at the core of what we do, and that um, you know, while we really started as a design-led company, my co-founder Alec is here, and Alec and I both started our careers um, as, as designers, the elements where we've really needed to build um, and design a business model that can support um, the impact of the designs that we make. And I think that that's a topic that sometimes gets a little bit under-addressed. And so I wanted to, um, at a minimum, just share some of the experiences that we've had about how you uh, build impact into the core of a business model um, and then how we've sort of learned about how that works well and where we've needed to adjust it over time. So, um, and, and I'm hoping to leave a healthy amount of time for Q&A so that, uh, I don't know, folks can uh, point in, in directions of where your interests are. So, um, so let me start with the question. What, uh, what does this guy have in common with this woman? Yep, that's, that's good. <laughs> cooking outside, yep, they're both cooking outside. They both got phones. Um, they both need power. Okay, cool. So we're all on the same page already. Um, you know, in our view, these are both examples of energy pioneers, people who are using energy in ways that the grid today doesn't fully support, right? And so these guys are really on the cutting edge of how you access energy in frontier environments. And their needs um, at, a, at a functional level are really surprisingly similar. Um, and, and that they're using a whole range of, of energy. They're using, um, it, I'm going to move to the next slide here. Um, sometimes I think about the easiest way to think about all of the touch points of energy, because at least for BioLite, we really think of energy as an inclusive system rather than the individual components. Um, I think one of the easiest ways to sort of, oh, sorry for the low res here, but um, to get your head around that is to take a more familiar, established example of where energy exists and where we're using it today. And so here's, here's a somewhat fancier than mine kitchen. Um, and so... You know, clearly these guys are cooking, they have lighting, they have refrigeration, they run small appliances, they're communicating, um, they have clean water. So these are all touch points of energy, um, but touch points that are a lot harder to access beyond the grid. The infrastructure that gets you there is, is really just starting to develop in many places. Um, and so at BioLite, where we really see our mission is to create an ecosystem of energy products and services that can kind of bring all of that functionality that keeps us safe and productive and connected um, and comfortable and entertained um, from the on-grid space to the off-grid space. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is where we've started. This is certainly, these are the products that, as a company, um, we've become best known for. And I'll, I'll go into a little bit more actually, before coming, how many folks had heard of BioLite before? Oh, okay, cool. All right, so friendly audience. Um, so, so uh, you know, we really started with these wood burning stoves that generate electricity. I'll go in uh, in a little bit more detail into how we do that. Um, and um, you know, through this model where we're taking the same technology and productizing it for two different customers in a recreation market and in, a, in an emerging markets context. Um, but where we're going is really trying to build a, an energy ecosystem where these products and, and functions are able to mutually reinforce one another. Um, because at the end of the day, energy is transformable, right? And so, you know, heat energy can be turned into electrical energy, which can be turned into lighting energy, which can be stored in batteries. And if we can create an ecosystem where this energy can 
as seamlessly as possible flow from the places where it exists to the places where it can do work for you, um, that's a much higher functioning ecosystem than if you have a stove and your stove is only a stove and your light can only store the energy it needs for its own lighting and um, you know, your phone's got its energy but can't talk to your lights. And really what we're trying to say is, can we create an ecosystem of products that can see energy as um, a fungible resource that can then get shared to all of the places where it works hard for you? And so um, what I thought I would do is I would start a little bit at the beginning and talk about how we got here. Um, uh, and then talk a little bit about what we've learned in the process. Um, so, so our journey started in 2006 when um, Alec and I were both working at Smart Design. Smart Design is uh, a user-centered design firm that uh, does product design and development for sort of larger, more well-established companies. We spent a ton of time doing design for brands like uh, OXO. Uh, we did a bunch of stuff for Hewlett Packard. We got to work on the original flip video cameras. Um, it was a really cool place to cut your teeth and um, work across a range of brands, of uh, product materials, manufacturing techniques. Um, and, and we got to take products from concept to uh, coming up with designed and engineered solutions for people's problems, uh, all the way through to establishing manufacture. Uh, mostly overseas. So it was, it was a really good training ground to get the sort of physical product skills under our belt. And, and so in 2006, um, Alec came to work one day with this, which is a, a product called the Sierra Zip Stove, and it's pretty awesome. It's um, basically a coffee can with a couple of holes punched in it. It has a little fan underneath it um, that's powered by a couple of alkaline batteries. And you drop twigs in it, and the fan turns on, and all of a sudden, these twigs go from being this kind of like crackly campfire stuff we normally think about to being a really hot, relatively, you know, a whole lot less smoky, uh, more controllable way to cook. And that was, that was just um, at a gut level for, you know, a couple of guys who like to go camping and were tired of carrying fuel around with us, just a really neat concept that... Um, this stuff that we might otherwise think of as a really low-quality fuel could be made to burn extremely cleanly with just a little bit of forced air into the mixture. Um, and so we started to think about that. Um, and, and the thing that really hung us up was batteries just didn't seem to make sense in this equation, right? If, if the goal is to give people grid-independent cooking, um, the batteries were always going to be the weak link in the system, right? Because probably enough twigs to run forever, but your batteries are going to run out at some point. Um, and then we started to think about it a little bit more at a first principles level and said, well, gosh, there's, there's 5,000 watts of thermal energy available in this cooking system, and all we needed was one watt of electrical energy to power these fans that could really transform the combustion into something that felt a lot more like gas, a lot more usable and controllable and clean. Um, and so how do we get there? And we looked at wind-up spring motors. We thought about solar panels. Um, what else do we think about? Oh, yeah, thought about turbines. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we, we really uh, thought about a whole range of things um, and stumbled onto a really cool relatively um, underused technology called thermoelectrics. And thermoelectrics, the way I think about them is thermoelectrics are basically solar panels for heat instead of light. And um, they're solid-state semiconductor materials. Uh, most people actually, uh, you know, like the Poland Spring office water cooler, um, those use thermoelectrics uh, in reverse. They use them for refrigeration, right? So you pump energy into them, and they move heat in one direction, and it cools your water without having like a gas cycle refrigeration system. But what you can do is you can also use them in reverse. You can pump heat through them, and they'll spit out a little bit of electricity. And they're not super efficient, um, but we didn't need a lot, right? We had 5,000 watts of thermal energy, and we needed one watt of electrical energy. Um, and so this was pretty neat. And what it turned out was we were able to generate more than we needed for the fan, and so we're like, huh cool, maybe we can also charge things with this thing. Um, 
And so it was very much sort of a personal interest, iterative process that got us started. And so we said, okay, cool theory. Let's see if we can build one of these. Um, and so this is, uh, <laughs> this is sort of the, the initial spark. We um, spent a bunch of time in Alex Loft in Brooklyn cobbling together a sheet metal prototype with you know, some very crude thermoelectrics and heat sinks that we could buy off of the internet. Um, and uh, the, the story here goes, you know, we're putting all the wood in and it's smoking and Alex poor wife and children are like, you know, cowering in the corner of the loft because we've like set off all the smoke alarms. And, um, and we realized that one of these wires wasn't twisted together. And we're, you know, we're really feeling, feeling pretty disappointed that this whole thing didn't work. And then we twist the wires together and this happens. Um, and it was ah, you know, amazing. This thing, it kind of works. And so we had this proof of concept that you could pull heat from the fire, turn it into electricity, power a little fan, um, and that this basic idea of turning sticks into gas-like cooking on a self-sustaining basis was going to be possible. Um, and so that was pretty exciting for us. And so we spent about a year and a half um, putting our engineering and design toolkit to work to try and say, okay, like how do we make this from a you know, folded piece of sheet metal into something that kind of resembles a product? Um, and so we went through three or four different... Um, prototype generations. We spent a lot of time working on the thermal system. One of the hardest parts of working on these is how do you make sure the thermoelectrics get hot enough to generate electricity but not too hot that you melt them? Um, that's, that's probably been the trickiest problem inside of using uh, this technology. And, and so over you know, a bunch of um, prototypes and playing around with really cool uh, computation, computational fluid dynamic tools, um, which kind of make more beautiful pictures. Uh, you learn as much doing this stuff empirically as you do in the computer, but it looks really neat. Um, we came up with our first prototype, and um, it was great, right? It, was, it kind of met our needs as a camper. We said this thing's got to be about the size of a Nalgene bottle to feel portable. We want it to um, be able to boil a liter of water about as fast as a jet boil stove. Um, we wanted to do that without tearing down the whole forest, so just you know, using twigs you can find um, under your feet, you know, a handful of them. Uh, we wanted it to be relatively smoke-free, so it wasn't going to leave soot on the bottom of your pots. Um, and then we wanted it, uh, this was sort of a bonus, we wanted it to make a little bit of electricity so that all of a sudden it wasn't just a stove, it might keep your phone charged, it might keep your headlamp recharged. Um, and so we're like, okay, cool, like, this works. We've built one um, that kind of fulfills the camper's promise. And so we, in 2008, we took this to a conference in Seattle called the Ethos, um, which I think stands for engineers in technical and humanitarian service. Um, but we just thought it was, you know, the world's best uh, wood-burning stove conference, which there's not a lot of competition for. Um, and so we go to this Ethos conference. We're like, this is cool. We're going to show off what a great little camping stove we've made. Maybe we're going to learn a little bit more about combustion science. Um, and so we're out here competing with uh, all of the geniuses of the humanitarian cook stove world. Um, and... and learned something pretty remarkable, something we did not expect. I guess we just, we hadn't dissected the acronym for the, at that point to, to realize the humanitarian point, but these guys weren't working on stoves for camping. These guys were working on stoves because half the planet is still cooking on wood. Um, and quite frankly, this whole thing took us completely by surprise, right? Like this was a personal interest project to make a camp stove that worked well for the two of us. Um, you know, we go to show off our neat technology and we get introduced to the fact um, that half the planet's cooking on wood, right? So here's a, here was a shocking statistic. In India, 80% of all residential energy, like cities, rural, um, all energy in the home measured in watts comes from burning wood on the ground, 80%. Um, and that, that energy is incredibly inefficient. About 10 to 15% of that makes it into your food. Uh, 85 to 90% of that is uh, what are called products of incomplete combustion, so waste heat that has a bunch of smoke, so particles, carbon monoxide, tars, NOx, like all of this really toxic stuff um, in it. And that 
Um, as, as I mentioned, this is, this is the case for about half the planet. Um, unsurprisingly, this is the same half of the planet that doesn't have access to electricity. Um, and, and here was the most shocking part, that the smoke from these indoor fires was killing more people than HIV, TB, and malaria combined, right? And how many people had even heard of the fact that smoke was killing this many people? I certainly hadn't. Um, it's okay, so a couple of people, so that's not bad. Um, but this was a real shock to us. And quite serendipitously, our funny little camping prototype um, in 2008 happened to win the cleanest stove of the year. So it was the cleanest stove they'd ever seen, and it was the only one that didn't require an electrical outlet to achieve those levels of emissions. And so there was this like, incredible serendipitous moment where we'd been working on something that was a personal interest thing and stumbled into a huge problem that this thing seemed kind of promising for solving. Um, and I think that's really, for me, that's the moment BioLite went from being a project to being a company. Um, and, and so the question was, well, how do you build a company around a concept like this? Um, uh, oh, and just, just to go back for one second, these stoves aren't just bad, or these open fire uh, kitchens aren't just bad for the cooks. They're also bad for all of us. Um, so an average open fire um, kitchen in, in India, Sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Latin America, emits as much CO2 equivalent as an average American automobile, right? So they emit about five tons of CO2 equivalent per year. Um, that's a mixture of CO2 from deforestation as well as black carbon, so dark particles, which are very intense, short-lived climate pollutant. Um, the, uh, and that's called black carbon. Black carbon from indoor cooking. Um, there's more black carbon from indoor cooking than there is from all of the world's cars and trucks combined. Right? So this is a huge problem or a huge opportunity. And there really hadn't been serious technical solutions um, up until this point. There'd been a lot of homegrown, um, what, was, what was at the time considered appropriate technology, so things that could be manufactured uh, in a village by a local craftsman with a, you know, a tin can and some mud and you know, a hole puncher. And, and, um, and this just seemed crazy to us coming from this mass-manufactured, high-technology, high-efficiency world where hard problems are solved with technology and mass manufacture, not appropriate designs. And, um, and so we started to think about, like, how could we take our experience um, as designers and technologists and make this work for this really high-impact market? And so the first thing we did was we took our prototype and we said, cool, got it solved. We already made the cleanest stove these guys had ever seen, and we sent it to Myanmar where a bunch of friends were working with a company called International Development Enterprises, and we said, well, you know, show the people the product and all will be solved. Um, and they were like, okay, it's a cool product, but doesn't work for us at all, right? Like, we don't want to break twigs up into tiny little pieces and keep lifting the pots off and dropping the twigs in. We've got families of five to eight people, so we're cooking not on tiny camping pots, but on big, uh, you know, two-gallon pots. Um, we want to use, uh, as I mentioned, we want to use logs, which is what we normally cook with, not little twigs. And so the technology was really good, but the product was wrong for this customer. And so we went back to the drawing board and we said, okay, well, how could we adjust this technology to a larger system? And we started by taking some stoves that had had some limited acceptance in these markets based on a design called rocket stoves. Um, and so these were stoves that could accept larger uncut pieces of wood. They were, they were already relatively thermally efficient. And we said, can we strap our technology on and cut these emissions way down? Um, and so I went over to India to see if this was you know, something that would work better for people, and did a bunch of village demos, did house demos, um, and uh, the cool part was this was now getting much closer to a design that people would adopt in their daily lives. It cooked the food they were used to eating, it used the fuel they were used to using, um, and it's solved for reducing emissions and improving efficiency. And so now we had 
you know, we'd kind of adapted our technology to a product that was a little bit closer to working for this customer, but this is all still prototype scale. And, and the real challenge was, okay, we think we've got a product solution for this customer. How do we go and get it out there? And so, obviously, the first problem is money. Like, where are we going to get money to fund such a huge problem? And, um, you know, I, I think the thing that struck me right out of the gate is we're talking about 3 billion people representing approximately 500 million households. Um, that's a lot. You, you need a lot of money to solve a problem like that. And um, so, you know, the first thing, because since this is a development program, we thought about how could we maybe get grants. And grants proved really challenging, right? So the timeline for applying for grants is oftentimes measured in many, many months or more than a year. So that's, that's a long time to wait when you've quit your job and you're eating ramen and you're like, well, grant's going to come through one day. Um, and not just for me, but we knew these were hard technical problems that needed a professional team to solve them, right? We were going to go and mass manufacture technical product. We needed to get in market um, and really work closely with distributors. Uh, you know, we were going to have to manage a compact, complex cash flow for a business like this. It really needed a team of professionals. Um, and, and grants were a very unpredictable way to do that. And even if we got through the first couple of years, were those funders still going to have interest in our problems two and three years down the road, um, or 10 years down the road? Right? This, is, this is probably a 20- or 30-year problem. And that just felt like a really unstable foundation for an enterprise like this. So then the next thing we thought about was, okay, well, we've got, got a really cool camping product. We've got a decent idea that if we like the camping product, other people might like it too. So maybe what we do is we go out and we sell camp stoves and we do a Tom's model, right? Every time we sell a camp stove, we'll put a home stove in someone's house and cool, like that, that might get us there. And again, the, the scale was really hard to ignore. I mean, how many camp stoves could we possibly sell, right? tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands if we were super successful. Um, and there were 500 million people who would need a solution like this. And so it just really felt like um, it wasn't fundamentally a model that would take us the full distance we needed to go. Um, and, and so at the time, I started to read a lot more about an emerging model um, called social enterprise. I think social enterprises have been around forever, but they were starting to become a more vibrant conversation. We'd seen the first um, social enterprise venture capital funds come into existence. Um, Acumen Fund, I think, has, is one of the most prominent ones. Uh, they funded uh, one of their most prominent uh, portfolio companies, a company called Delight. I don't know if folks have heard of Delight, but these guys were real pioneers in terms of bringing low-cost solar lights to emerging markets um, in a way that was consumer-centric that said, you know, this is not a philanthropy problem. This is a business problem, um, one that does benefit the consumer um, both for their, both economically and for their health, um, but one that sustains itself on its own um, economic fundamentals and value proposition to the end consumer. And that was really, really interesting to me, right? Because there, if you designed the product and the business system correctly, this is something that could propagate on its own. Um, and, and if we get it right, actually scale to address a problem of this magnitude. Um, and there was one other thing that was happening right around this time that now seems really obvious, but then was pretty new, which was you know, I think a lot of people had a hard time thinking of these low-income uh, households as customers, and yet they so clearly um, were, right? They had some amount of money. They were spending it on energy services. And now, all of a sudden, they were doing something which no one expected them to do before, which is this, right? They were all spending meaningfully more money on high-technology, energy-consuming products, right? And, and so in 2009, 2010, this was the very beginning of this trend. Now, you know, less than 10 years later, it's insane. 80 or 90% of off-grid households own cell phones. You know, a meaningful fraction of them are moving towards smartphones. Um, and they've found really uh, inconvenient ways to charge these things, right? You'll walk a couple of kilometers to town, 
um, and pay a guy 15, 20 cents a couple times a week to charge your cell phone. Um, but it was so clear that this was a, um, a user who could be thought of as a customer, right? Who, if the product was sufficiently valuable, would find the cash to invest in it um, and could maintain a high-technology product in an environment that we would have otherwise thought of as inappropriate. Um, and so these are... These, uh, these next few slides are an excerpt from, from our 2010 pitch deck um, for how we thought about, okay, well, how do, we, how do we sort of structure a business around this concept for this customer? And so first thing was, who's the person, right? Like, uh, we, we, we understand roughly what their income is. We understand that they're spending money on energy services. Um, we understand that they... Um, by and large own cell phones, which means they value electricity access. Um, we were able to turn that into an economic proposition that said, if we could design a product that could be um, essentially sold for less than the cost of energy you would invest in over the life of that product, that this was a really good economic proposition for this customer, let alone the fact that if we did this right, we might save their lives from an, from an emissions standpoint. Um, so we were able to come up with a value proposition at the customer level. Um, we are able to extrapolate that to a market size. Um, and, and, and a market size that had some macroeconomic factors that said basically the demand for energy in this market was going to grow so much faster than that government's ability to extend uh, energy services to the last mile, right? So there was going to be a huge unmet need. Um, that this was part of a much larger trend that really cell phones were instructing us about, which was that infrastructure for the future was not going to happen in the same way as infrastructure for the past, right? And cell phones really taught us that. Like, emerging markets are not wired with thousands and thousands of miles of, of telephone cables, right? They're all built around these decentralized... Um, uh, communication solutions with mobile, right? And even, even the cell towers themselves are wirelessly connected to the network. Um, and, and that this was part of, in our thesis, and I think many people's, you know, the same thing that was going to happen with energy, that energy wouldn't be a matter of hundreds of millions of miles of uh, transmission networks linked to coal-fired uh, power plants. This was going to be about energy that got owned at the household scale in the same way that, that communications now was. Um, we came up, this was just a pretty diagram at the time. Um, we had no experience with actually how to create these linkages, but we came up with a rough idea of how we might deliver it, where BioLite would be the manufacturer and the technology developer and the brand developer. Um, we'd work through contract manufacturer. We would access our customer through uh, a couple of different means, a commercial means across the top where there'd be all these retailers, <clears throat> which we couldn't say who they were, but they must exist, um, and that, you know, maybe we could find some banks who would help them access some capital so that they didn't have to plunk down 50, 60 bucks at once, but they might pay it off over time. And then maybe there'd be some, you know, sort of um, non-commercial settings where we could work with philanthropies in places like refugee camps where customers would just never have the money to pay. Um, and so, so that was a cool idea, but was clearly going to require a lot of money and a lot of time. Um, and, and even for the fact that there were now these social enterprise venture capital funds, these guys had hundreds of thousands of dollars to invest in things like this, maybe a million dollars. Um, and to solve a problem like this, it, like, we didn't really, we still, quite frankly, don't know how long it will take us to solve these problems. But it wasn't going to be a year, and it wasn't going to be two years, um, and it wasn't going to happen overnight. And so we really needed to think about how can we create a stable capital structure for this company that gives us the time to solve a problem this big. And, and that brought us back to our starting point a little bit, which was we designed a camping product, which we knew had value to us, we assumed would have value to people like us. Could we use a mixture of a social enterprise model um, that had some amount of venture capital backing paired with the recreation business that, quite frankly, we knew a whole lot more about. And could, you, could we use that recreation business to essentially bootstrap the emerging markets business to scale? And so, 
started to think about this and um, eventually came up with a, a name for it so we could convince venture capitalists that this was a big business idea. We are calling it parallel innovation. And this was the model, right? That we would get out there, we would sell our camping product um, because just by itself for users like us, it was a useful thing. Um, and that we would, uh, that would become profitable more quickly than our emerging markets business and would uh, essentially become an internal investment vehicle to bootstrap the emerging markets business to a scale where, you know, once it was at a large enough scale, it would hopefully self-sustain. Um, and, and after probably 50 failed venture pitches, um, eventually someone said yes, um, and then a couple more people said yes because that person said yes, and in the beginning of 2011, we had a decent chunk of cash and able to go out and hire up a team and get started. And so um, what I wanted to do now is pause for a second, play a short video um, that talks about, um, maybe, maybe gives, probably most importantly, gives a little bit of a glimpse into what the business actually looks like today. We're five or six years into this, um, you know, having had um, some success in the recreation markets, getting, getting the brand out there, and some success in the emerging markets, getting started um, delivering the cooking solutions to rural communities. Um, so I want to play a short video. It'll give you some sort of more tangible uh, images for what this looks like. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about what we've learned in these first five years about you know, what it takes to, to, to do well for this customer. Right now, this second, BioLite is bringing clean cooking and charging to thousands of people in India and Africa. Each and every one of our stoves uses less than half the fuel and produces 90% fewer toxic emissions than a traditional open fire, with the added benefit of an extra charge. And we couldn't have done this without you, our customers. Each and every one of you plays a part. Every time you go off the grid with BioLite in the great outdoors, you're supporting development for places off the grid everywhere. Energy is a basic human need. It cooks our food, lights up the dark, and keeps us connected. We started BioLite because traditional approaches to energy problems just weren't working. We needed more than new technology. We needed a business that could bring that technology to the people who need it most. A business based on real-world market demands, not charity. Solutions to big problems aren't easy, and they require thoughtful, long-term development that many companies just can't support. BioLite builds solutions to real-world problems into our recreational equipment, and those sales support how we get these solutions out to the rest of the world. We're creating a new way of doing business, empowering people to power themselves. You, our customers, empower us. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, so, so what, have we, what have we learned, right? Because we've done some things... Well, we've had, you know, some things work well for us. We've had a bunch of things uh, surprise us. Um, some of them humorously, uh, I'll give an example, our first container of stoves that we shipped across India fell off a train in the monsoon and was completely swamped and destroyed. We're like, oh, well, yeah, I guess these are hard markets to work in. Um, uh, but, but I think the, the biggest pieces that we've learned um, are that uh, this, you know, this isn't, just a technology problem that it, you know, the, that, that's certainly a, a huge component of it, um, but that the way we access the customer and the way that we convince that customer that this is something that is of value to them are equally hard fractions of the puzzle. Um, and so I thought I would go into uh, some pieces that we've learned in, in each of those segments. And so um, on the technology side, um, we started out with a first generation of the home stove where, uh, you know, we took the camp stove technology, we went through three or four revs of the product working with users to make sure that it functionally met their needs, um, and, and then we, we took that to market. And it did pretty well, but really the biggest challenge for us was the product was extremely expensive to manufacture, more than we could economically sustain for, that, for what that customer was willing to pay. And so we spent the first several years um, really trying to figure out, like, well, what is this worth to a customer, not just at a, 
this is what the customer tells you it's worth, but what the customer will demonstrate it's worth. Um, and what we found out was that these stoves were worth about $70 to these customers. Um, we sold uh, several thousand stoves to come up with that kind of data. Um, we learned that customers were using their stoves for three hours a day, 365 days a year. Um, and so to get that, that's about 1,000 hours a year. Um, and if we wanted these stoves to last for five years so that they um, were solid investments for this customer, we needed to get a stove that could last for 5,000 hours, and maybe our first stoves lasted for 1,000 to 2,000 hours. Um, uh, and so we embarked on a huge technical journey to reduce the cost of our product by about 50% while improving the durability by about four to 500%. Um, and so that was a really big technical challenge. Uh, and um, I think we've got time for it. I figured the, the most interesting way to hear about that technical part of the process is from um, one of our engineers who uh, is an actual rocket scientist. He was, uh, he, he started as our head combustion engineer, is now the head of engineering at the company. Um, but before this was building um, space shuttle engines at JPL. Um, and so uh, can take a couple minutes um, and he can talk us through what some of the technical challenges were um, and what the design process looks like for not the initial spark of inspiration, but what it actually takes to make that really stable as an in-market product. Yeah, hi. I'm Ryan Gist. I'm the senior combustion engineer here at BioLite. I work in the research department on home stove. The home stove is a clean-burning wood stove that generates electricity from the heat of the fire. Here I'm standing in front of what we affectionately call the museum. It's several generations of the product from simple proof of concept all the way to a fully developed product. Okay, let's go take a look inside the shop and the lab. In this lab, mechanical engineers work with electrical engineers and combustion engineers to develop our stoves and other products. We do burn tests every day and go through a lot of wood, so I'll show you where we split the wood. So we use two types of wood in the lab. This is kiln-dried red oak for when we need really repeatable, good test results, and this is white oak that we split ourselves for doing user testing and durability. So now you've seen how we make the fuel for the stoves, I want to show you another test fixture where we test the fans inside the stoves. The fan is really the heart of our home stove and camp stove products, and it's important because it's doing two jobs at once. The fan's providing oxygen to the fire to make it burn clean and efficiently, but it's also cooling the thermoelectric generator, which allows us to make power. So this fixture here, our flow bench, which we affectionately call the wind tunnel, might look like just a mass of tubes and wires, but it's a really effective way for us to find optimum operating points for our fans. We've got modular inserts for our wind tunnel that allows us to test every different aspect of the geometry of the fan, different motors, and different operating points in terms of power, flow, and pressure. So we can use our analytical tools and test fixtures like our wind tunnel to determine the optimal operating points for our fans and motors, and then we build that all together in a complete system and go test it under the burn hood. This is the combustion research area of our lab. We've got two burn hoods, and this is Venkatesh, our senior combustion engineer, in the middle of a test now. He's burning a prototype of the home stove unit, and the emissions from the stove are going up into our hood and being collected through these two analyzers. We're analyzing the gas emissions from the stove and also the particulate smoke. We measure the particulate smoke with a really cool method using a laser. By shooting a laser into the sample, we can see the scatter back off of the particulate smoke that's in the stream. Traditional stoves in Sub-Saharan Africa and India where people are cooking today release a lot of smoke. And with the air injection and the improved combustion efficiency inside home stove, we can eliminate 90% of that smoke. So Venkatesh is measuring the emissions from the stove, but he's also trying to optimize the output of the electricity generating portion. The temperatures inside the stove are very important, so we measure temperatures in a bunch of different places along with pressure, power input to the fan, and power output from the thermoelectric generator. So it's a really tough balancing act. Um, the fan's doing double duty, providing the air to the fire and also cooling the thermoelectric generator. And you can imagine we can put more power into the fan to generate more electricity, but we've taken more electricity to do that. And at the same time, we have to balance the amount of air and oxygen that the fire needs. And it's that balancing act that we work so hard on doing here in the lab. So we talked about the usability of the stove and the performance of the stove, which are really important. But if it doesn't last, it's not going to be a great product. This fixture in particular is testing for the long-term durability of the stove. So you can imagine when the stove is burned, the temperature goes up and then comes back down. And that cycling can be really damaging to the components. This fixture here runs 24-7, all day long, cycling through that temperature, up and down, up and down, and also running the electronics components 
through their power envelope. So even running 24 hours a day, this rig can only do so much. We've decided to scale up and get ourselves some more capacity to run more modules at higher temperature and for longer hours. We'll go next door and go see what Andrew's doing. This is Andrew. He's working on a bigger, better version of the durability tester we looked at next door. We can test four times as many power packs and actually control the ambient temperature so we get a much more representative test. We've been testing home stove inside homes in Indian Africa for a couple of years now. And with all the great feedback from the field, along with the hard work that's going on in the lab, we're ready to really scale up and continue to fulfill our mission of bringing energy everywhere. All right, well, thanks for everyone's patience with the dorky engineering, but I, I think uh, I really dig it. And I, I think it's also indicative of um, just, the, you know, the amount of labor it's taken to go from this initial working concept to something that's going to actually deliver value in homes every single day for five years. And, um, you know, I think it's been surprising even for us that it would take three years to take this first well-working home stove that we put thousands and thousands in people's homes and they were relatively happy to this product that was economically viable and durable enough to deliver this benefit in, in a truly valuable way. So then the next layer is um, access. Like, how do you actually get these products into people's hands? Um, so we experimented with a lot of different approaches. We, first thing we thought of was well, maybe we could get all this tea sellers in town, all the chaiwalas in town, to uh, advertise the stove. Maybe they'll cook on the stove, so they're already demonstrating it, and then maybe people will buy it from the chaiwalas. Turns out the chaiwalas are like pretty hard to wrangle in any real volume, and so that one didn't work all that well. Then we said, okay, let's just do it the way we do it here. Let's open a store. So we opened up uh, BioLite's first and only flagship store in Bhubaneswar, India. Um, we were pretty excited about it. We made a custom chai cart that would sit out front and serve chai. Um, we had a great opening day, and then no one came to the store again. Um, so uh, that was a bit of a disappointment, but, um, you know, good branding, I guess. Uh, and then we started to think, okay, we really need some partners who can do more of the lifting, who have a larger captive audience, um, and can really bring the customer to us, and then we can bring what's special about our product into that channel. And so we started to work with um, a bunch of different microfinance banks where they already have thousands of customers taking out small business and you know, personal uh, education loans and stuff like that. Uh, and so what we started to do was when customers would come into their microfinance branches, uh, to manage their, their personal loans, we would put an agent in the branch who would give them a dog and pony show about, hey, what do you think about upgrading the stove in your home? Here's, here's how it'll benefit how much fuel you need, how much time it takes to cook. Uh, it'll charge your husband's cell phone. It will, um, you know, it will reduce how much smoke in the home. And people aren't really interested in talking about the health factor, but they're certainly interested in talking about my walls stay cleaner, my pots stay cleaner, uh, my eyes don't burn when I'm cooking. Um, and so this started to really work for us. And the great thing about working with these microfinance institutions is not only were they local, right? Like they already had a community. They were already um, in very rural environments where our customers are. But they could apply the consumer finance layer so that you could purchase the product for $10 or $5 today and pay off the rest over a year as you realized economic benefit from fuel savings uh, buying less kerosene from lighting, uh, paying less to charge your mobile phone. And so you could really do it in a way that didn't borrow from the cash of the household, but was beneficial to the cash of the household. Um, and so we started to scale this up, and we now work with six or seven different microfinance banks um, in India, Kenya, and Uganda. And this has really been a staple model for us um, for how we access customers. Um, and then the last thing, and this is one that I don't think we fully understood when we got started, is, um, look, generating the best thing we can do to generate demand is to demonstrate the product, right? The product has um, sort of a self-evident benefit for the customer, but it's not just the product. It's how the customer feels about the product. And I think a lot of people have thought, okay, well, these are low-income customers without a lot of choices. As long as the thing basically works, it can look like a pile of garbage or just get delivered in a brown paper box, and that's good enough. And um, I think what we're realizing is that this customer really 
cares about what this product says about them. And the fact that this is a really, like this, this really represents an aspiration for modernity. And, and so, you know, when we, when we thought about the, the mission side of our business, I think we understood pretty well that um, our recreation market customer would be excited to be on the journey towards building impacts in emerging markets with us. And so this is, you know, this is mostly what it looks like for our recreation customer to see and experience the mission side of our business. But what we're realizing is that there is an equal and perhaps greater amount of pride for our emerging markets customer to feel associated with our recreation market customer. They feel like they're purchasing from a brand that makes really fancy, high quality things for customers like us who have a lot of choices um, and that this represents really a step towards, um, uh, well, I'll, I'll give an example. One customer told us the other day that in the products we were, we were delivering, we had turned their village into a city. And obviously we hadn't changed the population, but I think this idea of the city being a place where there are high quality goods that are high technology and really modern um, is a big piece of what folks want to purchase with this. And the more we can um, deliver that aspiration, the more effective our products can be. And um, another way we can do that is by affiliating our brand with other trusted brands in the local communities. And so here's an example. Um, in Uganda, we uh, have a selling agreement with the local telecom called Afrasel, um, where we can confer some of the confidence of their brand onto ours and, and really create trust with the customer. Um, and for me, this is an example of how we know some of this uh, brand building is, is working. Um, on the right, that is the instruction manual for the home stove and it's pinned up on the wall as a poster. And I think what this is saying is, this is something I'm really proud of, right? This, this is an exciting product for me to have in my life and something that I want my neighbors um, to understand uh, represents where I am going in my life. Um, and so, so here's where we are to date. We've um, sold uh, right around 20,000 home stoves um, of the first generation. The second generation product, the one that we've cost reduced and um, durability improved, is hitting the market this summer, and we're really excited for that. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and then here's, here's where we're going, having sort of a, we now understand what our value is to these customers, we understand how to reach them, we understand a lot better how to speak to them in ways that they are um, engaged with and excited with. Now I think the next step for us certainly is scaling the impact we can have with the home stoves now that they are cost viable for, for both us and for the customer. Um, and to start to expand that vision to what we talked about at the beginning, which is that this is not about cooking, it's not about lighting, it's about building um, an ecosystem of energy that can holistically support the functions that keep us safe and productive um, and comfortable inside of our homes or out on the trail. And so uh, this summer we're going to be launching our first lighting system in emerging markets to really try and um, fully flesh out what we think is going to be the home of the future. So um, with that, I'd uh, love to take questions. Thank you. Questions for Jonathan? So I'm, this is a, a great story. Um, I'm curious about how you feel about the struggles you had to raise, you know, five million or so versus, you know, some other, say, lesser altruistic products like, say, Juicero raising 120 million to squeeze bags of juice. I mean, I don't know what that says about us, but it seems like the VC model is kind of broken and not serving something that's obviously valuable like, like your product. Well, yeah, I, I wish we'd raised $100 million. That would have been... Uh, I, and I would prefer our products have that revenue to zero, but um, I think it's hard, right? The, I think, honestly, the challenge is on us, not on, on venture capitalists, right? Like, their business model is to put money to work in places where that money becomes more money. And I think that um, in the emerging markets context, that is still a relatively high-risk proposition without... Um, yeah, we've sold 20,000 
stoves and um, you know, at relatively, well, the first stoves were at negative margins, so we lost a bunch of money selling 20,000 stoves, and now we're gonna make a little bit of money selling the next generation of stove. Um, but I, I think, uh, I don't think it's the fault of the venture capitalists, I guess is what I'm, what I'm saying. Um, I think perhaps as a society, we have undervalued um, the true costs of uh, having half the world's population be less productive than they could be, and I think there is a real economic justification there. Um, but I, I wouldn't blame the VCs for that. I think it's a combination of we collectively need to work harder to prove that these models can be profitable. Um, and as a society, we need to put value on the things that have value. And you know, I think one of, the, um, one of the most obvious ones would be to put a price on carbon, right? If there was a price on carbon, the carbon offsets that come from our products uh, in homes in emerging markets are something on the order of 100 times cheaper than um, if you gave everyone a Toyota Prius instead of a Honda Civic, right? Um, but because we don't price those things, uh, those kinds of opportunities go under-realized. Thank you, Jonathan. This is awesome. And I remember running into you years ago at OR, um, and this is so inspiring to see you guys where you were and where you are today. Um, in terms of uh, developing the product and the product life um, cycles and whatnot, I think you said 5,000 hours would be the lifespan of a particular product, uh, this new one that's launching, I believe, mm -hmm. so, which would translate, what, into like four years or four and a half years of continual use? Mm -hmm. Um, how do you, what kind of matrix do you use to know that whether or not that's appropriate or if that's amazingly wonderful or, I mean, obviously saving lives is more important, right? But from a business standpoint, how do you, how do you reconcile that? And then the other question is, have you encountered any kind of corruption on the ground, like, you know, with people wanting to, mon mon you know, monopolize or kind of deal with your product and sell it in their own terms and own ways? Um, yeah, so the first question was, uh, how did we determine that five years is an appropriate life for the product? Um, it's, look, I, we, we don't have perfect data on this stuff, but basically we have a sense of what willingness to pay is for the product, and we know that there's a pretty sh uh, sharp cutoff point once you cross certain thresholds. I mean, we would sell a whole lot more products if we sold them for $30 instead of $60, um, but we just simply can't make a product durable enough that delivers the functionality at $30. And so what we look at is at what point does willingness to pay versus the, cross, uh, versus the cost of building that durability cross over. And I think there's a huge amount of error in that model, but that's, that's basically how we get there is we, we think that there's an efficiency point um, right around five years. Because we can build a stove that'll last 100 years, right? Cast iron stoves in your home last 100 years. Um, but it would cost us a few hundred bucks, and that's just not viable in, for the context of this customer. Um, in terms of corruption in market, I mean, look, these are hard to work in markets. We've had um, very, very few um, unfortunate experiences with, with, you know, bad intentions. We have had a couple of staff members. Um, abscond with things they shouldn't have, um, and that was disappointing, but I think businesses here have that stuff sometimes too. Um, more than anything, though, we've just found so much interesting collaboration. You know, it's, uh, I, I think the willingness, for example, of microfinance banks to jump into this segment of the market, I mean, their, their primary products historically have been financial products, and a willingness to create a financial product for a durable good where they incur the risk of our product failures on their brand, um, I think really shows that there is some, there, there's a whole lot more underlying goodwill um, to, to see these problems addressed than there is uh, corruption or skepticism. Um, this is so exciting, and it just seems like this, the, the amount of potential is, is unlimited. Um, I'm really curious about your vision for the future in terms of the convergence of your two markets. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. It's something, it's something we talk a lot about, but we don't have... Um, I don't know that we have a perfect image of what we think the future looks like. Certainly, we think that 
um, energy as an ecosystem and creating independence from the established grid infrastructure is going to be valuable to both sets of customers. I think one of the areas, so I don't know, I'll just give you a couple of nuggets, but like I don't know that they form a perfect picture yet. Um, I think we're really curious about the, as, as energy consumption increases in emerging markets and efficiency becomes much more of a driving factor in developed markets, um, that I think these customers start to look more alike over time than less alike. And so um, an example in, in emerging markets is where, you know, I mentioned we're about to launch this solar home lighting system. It's a six-watt system that will run four lights and a radio. Um, and um, we already have an expansion uh, design in the works that will get you to 30 watts, which will run a television and a fan. Right? And we, we, we know that the demand is in the market for that stuff, and it's especially if you can deliver it with, with financing, that there's a serious base of customers who want that. At the same time, you know, this is an eight watt hour device um, that does a whole lot of hard work for us. You know, LED lights, you know, two watts of LED is an incredible amount. Two watts electrical of LED is like 250 lumens of light. Um, and so I, I, think, I think what we're going to see is that these two markets start to converge in terms of the absolute number of watt hours in their day required to deliver a huge fraction of um, the energy value. And I think as we see that, our product portfolios will start to look more and more alike. And this, this will be the last question before we wrap up. I guess this is kind of a personal question. I'm making a lot of assumptions about your past and in your career path, but if you started as a, a designer and are now a CEO, what's that transformation been like? I mean, you certainly speak like a, a CEO with a good understanding of the business model and the value proposition, so what's that been like? Chaotic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first venture capital meeting we went to um, in 2009 um, was with a really cool venture fund called Grey Ghost Ventures. Um, and, and we walked in there and they said, okay, cool. Uh, you know, or Alec and I said, we'd, we'd like to raise $300,000 from you um, and we'd like you to get us a CEO. Um, and uh, the first question they said, are you looking for equity or debt? And we said, I don't know, which one of those is money? Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so, so that was the first piece. And then they said the 300 grand is fine, but clearly you don't understand your business well enough yet because you need a lot more than that to do something like this. Um, and then the second thing they said was, but, you know, that's not a problem for us. We could get you $300,000. Um, we're not going to give it to you, but we could. Um, uh, and then the second thing they said is, if we could get you a CEO, we'd be the most valuable venture fund in the world. And um, I think what the realization for me there was, was, you know, if we weren't going to build this, no one was. Um, and, uh, and so for me, it just, it was... This wasn't going to happen unless I put aside the design interests. Um, and quite frankly, like, that was the only thing I actually had any real skills in. Um, and took a focus on building the business side skills. And so I quit my job. I joined an incubator in India. I you know, made myself an honorary member of a development economics group in Berkeley for a year. Um, and really put a lot of time into trying to build the business understanding. Um, and, and I think it just, it happens organically. You get faced with these challenges and you screw them up and then you know a lot better and you do 50 failed venture pitches and you, you know, mishandle one HR issue and you do it better the next time. And, um, so I, I think it's, I think it's an iterative process and I don't think you have to go get an MBA for it. In fact, most, I was talking to Anton from Oru about this yesterday and he was saying, um, you know, their CEO has an MBA, and he says the stuff he learned in his MBA is totally irrelevant to the stuff he does in his business. And so I think it's, it's really a process of learning, but, but being committed to the fact that you have to generate these skills in order to be successful going forward. Thanks. I hate to cut off this uh, discussion. This is really great. Thank you, Jonathan.